God, we are so thankful for the opportunity to study the Word of God and to learn about a very, very important uh, commandment that really touches a lot of our lives and uh, various aspects of our lives. Father, I pray that you would give us um, uh, just the attentiveness to focus on the Word and to to really engage with, with what this means for our lives. So please bless this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, one of my favorite, all, all-time favorite TV shows is NCIS. Any, you guys heard of NCIS? You guys know NCIS? NCIS stands for uh, Naval Criminal Investigative Service. And it's a show about a group of federal agents who specialize in investigating murders involving naval officers, okay, naval officers. And I like the show because it's always got a good story. Um, it's got a witty script all the time. Uh, it's really well put together. And it's lighthearted at the appropriate times uh, while still kind of exploring some serious issues and asking thought-provoking questions. But the show ultimately revolves around the theme of murder. Murder, right? And our world is fascinated by murder. I mean, you know, I mean, that's, the, that's why, that's why, like, a large portion of our TV shows are about murder, like NCIS or Law and Order or, you know, Criminal Minds or Psych or something like that, right? And for some reason, these shows especially love to focus on homicidal maniacs or, you know, even like sociopaths or serial killers and things like that. Well, this morning, I'm not aiming to be morbid. But we are going to talk about murder, okay? Murder. Uh, because this morning we want to tackle the sixth commandment, which is, very simply, do not murder, okay? Do not murder. So what we're doing is we're beginning to put the pedal to the metal, so to speak, in our series through the Ten Commandments. Um, no longer am I preaching uh, two sermons per commandment, okay? I'm, I've kind of stopped that. And I'm only I'm, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm collapsing the two sermons into one, okay? So that, so that way I, can, I only have to preach one sermon per commandment. And this should be able to double our speed and allow us to finish the series a lot faster. And I'm doing this because by now I think you understand the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, we've talked about this a lot, and I've tried to illustrate it a dozen different ways. Um, so I hope that you get the gist of how the Old Testament talks about the Ten Commandments and how the New Testament talks about the Ten Commandments and how the two relate to each other, okay? I hope you do, because I'm not going to talk about it today, okay? I'm not. I'm just going to assume that you're on board with what I'm saying, okay? And so this morning, we press on in the second half of the Ten Commandments, and we want to take a look at the Sixth Commandment, do not murder. And we'll take a look at it from two different angles. First, we'll look at it from the Old Testament side of things, And then second, we'll dive into the New Testament to uncover some more information that isn't so visible on the surface. So let's explore the Sixth Commandment uh, in the Old Testament, the Sixth Commandment in the Old Testament. Um, You can find the Sixth Commandment stated directly in two places in the Old Testament. And they shouldn't surprise you too much because I've mentioned these places before, but One of them is Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. The other one is Deuteronomy chapter 
5, verse 17. Okay? We won't go to either of these passages this morning because in both places, all it says about the, about the sixth commandment is do not murder. That's all it says. And that's virtually self-explanatory. But while the sixth commandment only comes at us with just three little words, do not murder, let me take you on a brief tour through parts of the Old Testament and show you what the Sixth Commandment is all about and how it works, okay? You see, there's actually more to the Sixth Commandment than what meets the eye. It's not just a rule that forbids you from killing people. I mean, that's true. You shouldn't kill people. Please don't do that, okay? Uh, but the Sixth Commandment, like the other nine commandments, is designed to send a message. It's designed to send a message. And the message is this. God cherishes life. God cherishes life. God loves life. He values it. He prizes it. Um, but this kind of might be hard for us to un get our minds wrapped around, and it's hard for us to understand this. How does not murdering someone communicate that God loves life? I mean, a lot of people in the world don't murder anybody, and I never get the sense that it somehow broadcasts that God loves life. Like, it doesn't really connect, you know, it's not like that's very obvious and apparent. So how does do not murder circulate the truth that God cherishes life? How does it actually do that? Well, let's examine a few Old Testament passages and see just how it does that. So open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy chapter 19. And we're just going to look at the first couple of verses of this chapter. Deuteronomy isn't just a book that gives us the Ten Commandments. I hope you guys know that. It's also, it also brings up many other important yet smaller laws that Israel had to obey. And one of them uh, is found in Deuteronomy chapter 19. And if you begin in verse 1, we will look at this particular law. It says, When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall set apart three cities, three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God has given you to possess. You shall measure the distances and divide it into three parts, the area of the land the Lord your God gives you as a possession, so that, here's the reason, any manslayer can flee to them. This is the provision for the manslayer, who, is, who by fleeing there may save his own life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past. So, what's this talking about? Kind of sounds weird. Set aside three cities so that a manslayer can be there and save his life. Right? This, this is the, this, the commandment that Israel is supposed to obey here is that once they conquer the land of Canaan, they haven't done that yet, once they conquer the land of Canaan, they're supposed to select three cities spread out evenly across the land of, of Canaan um, to be safe havens, okay? So, here's my marker. If this is like the land of Israel or something, okay, they, they need to select three cities that are evenly distributed across the land, okay? And the question is like, why? Why would they do that? Uh, but the whole point of these cities is that they're designed to be safe havens for a manslayer. And really these cities kind of act like big panic rooms. They're like big panic rooms that you can run to 
if a crazy maniac is chasing you. That's what it's for. It's like, what? That's crazy, but it's true. And here's the reason why you need these to be set up. Verse 5 gives us a great example of why you need these cities, okay? It actually gives us a hypothetical scenario of what could happen. So look at verse 5. It says, for example, when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood and hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and, and, and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. So what we have here, you're like, what, what was that talking about? What we have here is a lumberjack, okay? And he's happy because he has this really cool axe thing, okay? And uh, he cuts down trees and stuff, okay, for a living. And he and his friend are there, and, and they're cutting down trees and all that kind of stuff, okay? And so the, this example basically says, well, this is this is who the man this is the manslayer, okay? Which I'm dubbing our lumberjack. Okay. That's what I'm gonna call him. He's Mr. Lumberjack, all right? What? Yeah, that's right. He's a manslayer on the side. But here's the thing. The, this manslayer, this lumberjack in this illustration, is someone who accidentally kills his friend. He didn't purposely kill him. He was swinging his axe at the tree, and then all of a sudden, the, 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 the head of the axe, the sharp part, flings off, okay? And it gets lodged in, in his friend's head, okay? And the poor friend, dies okay he dies because it's just it just happened by accident so you know I didn't I don't mean to get all gory with you here but but hey that's the nature of murder okay if you ever watch NCIS or any of these shows it's way more gruesome than this okay so so you can stomach this all right but to make matters worse for our lumberjacks our lumberjack here the text implies that these two guys are all alone in the woods they're all by themselves and so who's to say our lumberjack, our manslayer guy, didn't purposely kill his neighbor, didn't purposely kill his friend? So here's what's going to happen. Um, th his, the, this friend's family is going to get really mad at this guy, right? And they're going to make it their life's ambition to kill him, okay? So this guy's in, this poor lumberjack's in trouble, okay? Now in our world, this guy would be sued by this guy's family, right? And CSI would come out and analyze the victim and process his DNA and examine the position of the body, how deep the ax head was lodged in his neighbor's skull, and so on and so forth, right? And they would actually make a determination in a court of law based on the evidence of the crime scene, this guy is probably not guilty, it was an accident. Well, they don't have the luxury of this back then. They don't have CSI. It's just, it's, 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 um, it's, it's this guy's word against his family's. And that's just the way it is. And so basically everyone's gonna gang up on Mr. Lumberjack and this guy has to run for his life. So here's what happens. Here's what happens. Um, 
this new guy comes on the scene called the Avenger of Blood. Okay. Okay. And he's angry because he's because he is this because he is the neighbor's friend. And so his life ambition now is to kill Lumberjack, okay? And so he becomes a, a certifiable psychopath bent on lumberjacking this lumberjack, okay? So here's, here's where this all comes into play, all right? Here's where this all comes together. Those three cities of refuge that God asked Israel to set up become a panic room for our manslayer, our lumberjack. They're designed to protect him from this maniac Avenger guy, okay? And to help the lumberjack out, there's three cities evenly distributed uh, throughout the land so that if it happen, if the event happens anywhere in Israel, there's a place close by that he can run to. It's not like there's one city and the event happens way down here and the poor lumberjack has to run 40 miles to go find a safe place to hide, okay? Um, he only has to run maybe 10 miles or so. So, so it's a really nice uh, 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 safe haven for this guy to run to. These cities are designed to protect life. That's their point. They communicate that God cherishes life, and so should we. And this is really a tangible way Israel protected the lives of the innocent when no one else was able to protect him. So what would happen is, he would run to the city, he would hide in the city, the avenger of blood would come up and knock on the door and say, hey, I want to kill Lumberjack. And Lumberjack's like, I killed his friend by accident. It was totally an accident. And the city's like, okay. And so they'd be like, uh, avenger dude, go home. And so he's like, okay. And if avenger dude decides to say, no, I want to come in, the entire city like goes AP on him and kills him. So that's the way it worked. Um, it was a way to protect the innocent. So that's, that's, that's the point of this. Now let me give you another example of, of how the Sixth Commandment kind of plays out, okay? Uh, just jump forward one chapter to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20, okay? So we're just going to go one chapter over, and we'll look again at verse 1. I love I loved this one. This one's hilarious to me. Uh, it says, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to battle, uh, the priest shall come forward and, and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart be faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. So, this commandment has to do with war. There will come a time when Israel needs to go to war with, with other nations, okay? Once they get into the land of Israel, they will have an obligation responsibility to protect their land and to fight against other nations and kind of expand their borders, all right? And in this situation, what happens when they need to go to war is that the priest is supposed to gather all the soldiers together and get a really big rally going. And then he gives them this kind of inspirational talk, kind of like at a football 
you know, like before you go out on the football field and stuff like that, or whatever sport you play. And so, you know, like they might be like chanting and stuff like that. You know, what do we want? Assyria. When do we want them? Now, you know, and stuff like that, right? And, and then, you know, he might be like, you know, telling them, it's time to man up, boys. You've got God fighting for you and stuff like that, right? And so the soldiers start shouting and beating their chest and stuff like that and getting all crazy. But then something weird happens, okay? Something weird happens. All the noise stops and everything gets quiet. And in verse 5, the, the priest says something, okay? He says something. Look at verse 5. Then the off, um, I'm sorry, not, not the priest, the, the officers. Then the officers shall speak to the people saying, is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. So what's going on here? We have this man, this soldier. We'll give him a spear. Okay. And he just built this house. Small house, I guess. But he just built this house. And he hasn't dedicated it yet. Okay. And... And so what happens is, is the officers, basically the commanders are saying, has anyone built a house recently and hasn't dedicated it? And a couple of people, guys are like, yeah, we have. And he's like, they're like, oh, you know, that would be really a bummer if you go out to battle and die before you ever get to dedicate and enjoy your house. So you know what? You don't have to go to war today. You can go home, enjoy your house, take a break, take a day off. It's like, wow, that's pretty generous of you guys so so after getting all this entire army riled up and excited about going to war everything just kind of settles down and a group of them get up and go home to dedicate their new homes and so the army would start kind of looking at each other like what just happened they're like we just lost part of our army so but then everything would just kind of like all right we're we're getting back into the rhythm of, rhythm of things and so they would start chanting again and getting going but then they're silenced by the commanders again in verse 6. And, he, and the commanders ask, And is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man enjoy its fruit. So we have another guy. And this guy, he planted a vineyard. And this vineyard, I don't know. This vineyard is really nice, and it's got all kinds of grapes and all kinds of other fruit and stuff like that, right? And so these officers are asking, does anyone have a garden or a vineyard? It would kind of stink if you died too and didn't get to enjoy some wine or fruit or whatever. So, yeah, you can actually stay back too. And everyone's just kind of like looking around with kind of, you know, crickets in the background. They're like, okay, we just lost another part of our army. We done? Can we go to war now? And nope, we can't, because verse 7 has another person. Verse 7 says, And is there any man who has betrothed a wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man take her. So we have another guy who, who just, let's see. Let's do it this way. Sorry. We have another guy who just proposed to his girlfriend okay and they're both so happy all right she is just ecstatic 
and so is he. They just got engaged. And, and so, so the officer asked, is anyone engaged out there? It would be a bummer if you died right after you never, right, right after um, uh, you got engaged and you never actually got to get married. I mean, can you imagine like the scenario actually like, you know, this guy bends down on his, on his knee and he says, you know, Jezebel, will you marry me? And <laughs> sorry, it's, you know, it's an ancient name, so I have to give her some name. And, and she says, you know, yes, of course. And then at that moment, the commanders walk up to this happy couple and say, um, excuse me, I need to grab a, a Bimelech for a moment. He's, <laughs> he's, he's needed for battle today. And it's like, oh, bummer, dude. So those, so these guys also get a pass, apparently, okay? So by now, all the soldiers are just really getting antsy. And they're like, like come on, let's, let's, let's go to war. And, and so and they're like, we're, we're done, you know, making exceptions for all these guys, right? Nope, we're not. Uh, verse 8 has another one. Uh, it says, and the officers shall speak further to the people and say, is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. So we have one more person, and this guy is just absolutely terrified of war, okay? He's just terrified of war. So, okay? So the officers ask, is there any scaredy cat out there who doesn't want to go to war? And probably like half the army's like, yeah, that's me. So like this army has been like reduced to almost nothing by this point. And, you know, all the, all the uh, you know, Rambos and Chuck Norris's in the group are actually really excited because who wants to fight alongside a scaredy cat? So they're actually really happy. And, and these guys are really happy because they don't want to go to war. So it's actually a win-win scenario. So finally, that's it. That, that's all the exceptions. And there's like almost no army left, okay? And, and, and so why does God allow all these exceptions? Why does he do that? Now, I don't know if you realize this, but this is actually the dumbest military tactic on the planet. You know, you would never allow for so many exceptions to your army. You, you want to get as many guys into your army as possible um, to fight for you because there's always strength in numbers, right? You want a big army. I mean, for those of you guys who play Clash of Clans and stuff like that, is it more, more uh, you know, uh, people in your army better than less? It almost always is, okay? Unless your army is self-destructive or something. Um, you never deplete your army for simple reasons like, I just planted a vineyard and I really like it. Or I just built a house and it's really cool. It's like, you never do that. Like, why would you send someone home for that? Uh, you know, you're going to get your entire army killed that way because there's no one left to fight. But actually, surprisingly, that's not the case. You're not going to get them killed. Because while that's the dumbest military strategy ever, and no one in their right minds would ever dream of doing this, Israel's not any ordinary army, right? They're not. Who's fighting for this army? God is. God is. It doesn't matter what the size is. God's still going to win. If he wants them to win, they're still going to win. <clears throat> you know, send the majority of them home. That's okay. It won't make a difference. There's actually a story in the book of Judges where this situation happens. Uh, you probably know of it. God orders Gideon to winnow his army down to 300 men. 
300 men. Now, that's, that sounds maybe like a lot of people, but back then, armies were usually in the hundreds of thousands. So go send a 300-person army. Go send this church, the size of this church, up against the entire city of Bakersfield. Who's going to win? You know, it's not going to happen. We're not going to win. I'm sorry. I don't care how skilled we are. We're not going to win. You know, I know you guys, you know, shoot guns around here, but so does everybody else. So you guys are all dead. Um, now, you might remember that these 300 men blew some trumpets and smashed some jars in their hand. Weird, but they did. And they somehow managed to knock out an entire Midianite army that was as numerous as the sand of the seashore. And so we're talking probably hundreds of thousands of soldiers, if not millions here. Lots of people. And 300 of these soldiers knocked out all of those soldiers. Oh, and none of the 300 men actually died. That's crazy. That's impossible, except if you have God on your side. And they didn't even have to draw a sword or confront any of the bad guys either, so that's kind of cool too. So, so yeah, you don't need to worry about these soldiers. Um, they're fine. They're fine. But that's actually not the reason God sends all these soldiers home. The reason is this. There's always still a chance that someone might die in war. There's always that possibility someone's going to die. And you always take that risk when you send someone into battle. What God is saying by sending all these guys home is, I don't just value the lives of my soldiers. I value their livelihood. I value their livelihood. Notice what all these soldiers who got sent home have in common. They all haven't lived. They all haven't lived. And you know what I'm talking about. You know, you ask someone, dude, have you been to the Magic Mountain before? And they're all like, no, I haven't. And so you're like, bro, you haven't lived. You haven't lived. Now, is Magic Mountain necessary for survival? Yes. No, it's not. Food and water? Yes. Magic Mountain? No. Air? Yes. Tatsu? No. No. But if you've ever gone, have you ever lived? No, you haven't. Okay? You all need to go to Magic Mountain in order to really live. Saturday, June 25th, Cornerstone event. Be there. It's live, right? It's happening. So there's my plug for Six Flags Day, okay? Life is more than breathing. It's more than survival. I think we would all agree with that, right? You don't want it to be out in the middle of the desert like Survivor Man or Bear Grylls on Land vs. Wild just eating snakes and scorpions and all that kind of stuff, right? That's not living. That's just survival, okay? There's life and then there's living. Life is meant to be enjoyed. All these exceptions went home uh, because there are parts of their life that they haven't enjoyed yet. This guy hasn't enjoyed his home. This guy hasn't enjoyed his vineyard. This guy hasn't, uh, isn't married yet. He needs to get married. This guy, well, he's just scared, okay? So they haven't lived yet. And that's, the, that's a big part of the sixth commandment. God cares not just about life, not just about survival. He cares about living. Do not murder is more than just restraining yourself from stabbing someone to death. That's, that's not all that the Sixth Commandment is about. It is about that, but it's more than that. It's about helping people live and live abundantly. Uh, you know a good example of this in the Bible? 
is actually Boaz in the book of Ruth. Um, Boaz is a great example of someone who actually helped someone not just survive, but actually live. Uh, Boaz lived in the nation of Israel. Ruth lived in the nation of Moab. And Ruth decided to immigrate from Moab to Israel with her mother-in-law. But being a Moabite in Israel is actually suicide because everyone hates you there. You're an outcast. And you can't survive in Israel when you're an outcast. You can't get a job. Um, You just have to hope that someone, some random person will be nice to you and help you out. And that's exactly what happened to Ruth. As it turns out, uh, Ruth was going through a wheat field picking up scraps from uh, the workers that accidentally dropped them. And when Boaz found that out, he didn't stop her. He actually encouraged her to keep doing that. And then um, he actually made sure his workers purposely dropped more for her to pick up. That's crazy, but that's true. And he actually, he eventually married her and gave her pretty much everything she ever dreamed of. So, so there you go. You know, that's what it means to honor the sixth commandment. It's, it's more than just survival for, for everybody else. It's, it's helping people really live. That's the sixth commandment. The Old Testament doesn't just say don't murder. It says broadcast that God cherishes life and not just survival life, but living, really living and enjoying life. God says that the, through the sixth commandment, be a champion of helping others really live because I'm all about that. So the principle that we learn here in the Old Testament is that God cherishes life and life abundant. God cherishes life and life abundant. That's the sixth commandment in the Old Testament. But what about the sixth commandment in the New Testament? In the New Testament. Is there really anything different? Is there really anything different? Yes and no. Yes and no. No, it's not all that different. It's, it's still kind of the same idea. God cherishes life, and so should you. God cares about people really living life, and so should you. But the New Testament brings to the surface something I think that could easily slip through the cracks. The Old Testament talks about it, but it doesn't talk about it as openly or as definitively. So the Sixth Commandment is not just about valuing life. It's about caring for other people from the heart, from the heart. God doesn't just want you to go through the motions and help others out. God cares about your heart in the entire operation. Is your heart really in it? And the New Testament begins to bring this to the forefront, and it it shows us how we can figure this out if we're really doing this from the heart or not, or if it's just kind of mechanical or behavioristic. And we're just kind of going through the motions. So to see this, I want you to go to the New Testament and to the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 21. Matthew 5, 21. And we're going to examine this principle from just a few verses here. Matthew 5, 21 and following is, is part of a larger sermon that Jesus himself preached to a large crowd. And this sermon's been dubbed the Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus preached this sermon on top of a large hill. And so we're, what we're actually doing here is we're, we're parachuting ourselves midway through his sermon, actually, uh, which really isn't fair to Jesus, because he would want us to listen or to read this whole thing. 
But, but we don't have time to do that, so I need to do an extra good job of kind of painting the context for you as I go. But the Sermon on the Mount is all about defining Jesus' new kingdom. If Jesus is the true king of Israel and the true king of the entire world, what does he expect from his kingdom citizens? What does he expect from you and me? The Sermon on the Mount legislates exactly what the people need to do. It lists for them the new law of the land, if you will. But this law isn't for one particular nation. It's not for Israel. It's not for Assyria. It's not for America. It's for Christians. This law is for Christians. And this is what Jesus expects Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, i.e. citizens of heaven, uh, to be doing as his kingdom citizens, okay? And part of what he expects from them is outlined for us in Matthew 5, verses 21 to 26. So go ahead and start reading along with me in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the, fire, to the hell of fire. So Jesus begins by saying, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and that whoever murders will be liable to judgment. This is talking about the sixth commandment. This is talking about the sixth commandment. And the ancients that this was talking about probably refer to Israel when they first received the sixth commandment, okay? And Jesus assumes that everybody knew the sixth commandment, right? You guys know the sixth commandment, don't murder. And they did too. Uh, they knew their Ten Commandments. They knew them really well. Um, and they knew it. I mean, they tried to follow the Sixth Commandment to the letter of the law. Like, they were really, really picky about it, okay? And here's where we actually run into a problem. Sometimes you can get so caught up with following the letter of the law that you totally miss the spirit of it. The spirit. In other words, yes, you shouldn't murder, but, you know, you know please don't murder. But, but that's all the Jews took it to mean. They didn't take it any steps further. They didn't take it to its logical conclusion. And that's a problem because as we just learned from the Sixth Commandment in the, in the Old Testament, the Sixth Commandment is more than just about survival. It's about helping people live the good life. It's, it's, about, um, it's, it's about helping people live and live abundantly. The Jews in Jesus' day really missed the boat here. They didn't get this principle. And so when Jesus says, you've heard that it was says, don't, don't murder, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be held accountable to judgment, that's news to them. That's news to them. And it shouldn't have been, but it was. You know, you mean to tell me that, you know, yelling at my parents or, or calling people names at school is on par with murder? Yes. Yes, in the sense that it makes you just as guilty of hell. It does. Killing someone's much worse from a human perspective, you know, than, than just kind of getting angry at somebody. You know, that's true. I would rather you yell at somebody than, than kill them. Please, you know, don't kill anybody, okay? It's not like it's on the same level human, on a human perspective. But from God's perspective, they're both going to receive the same punishment. Why? Why? Isn't one far worse than the other? 
Why do they deserve the same punishment? Because they both come from the same wicked, selfish heart. That's why. That's why. The kingdom that Jesus is talking about is more than just how you handle yourself externally. It's also about how you handle yourself internally. So Jesus warns the Jews, my kingdom is not about externalism. It also deals with who you are on the inside. That's my kind of kingdom citizens. That's what Jesus says. You don't want to end up, you know, here's an example. You don't want to end up in, in a marriage where your wife or your husband says that he loves you from time to time, but he never means it, right? You never want that. Like, it doesn't make any sense. You want someone who loves you from the heart, from the heart, right? Jesus wants all of you from the heart. So yes, murder is wrong in Jesus' kingdom, but so is anger of any kind. Jesus plums the depths of the heart and penetrates to the level of the desires and the motivations and the thoughts and the intentions. And to kind of show you just how serious Jesus is about this, he gives you two powerful examples, two very powerful examples. The first is in verses 23 and 24. The first is in verses 23 and 24, okay? Look at verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus tells them, I take anger so seriously that if you have any resolved, unresolved conflict with your, friend of your, with your friend of yours, I want you to drop whatever it is you're doing, even if it's offering a gift to God in the temple, and I want you to go and resolve that broken relationship. Drop what is what, is what you're doing and resolve that conflict. Offering your gift at the altar was actually a, a very big deal back then. Uh, God regarded that as an important part of worship. Um, some people had to travel upwards of 80 miles to offer this, this gift. 80 miles on foot, okay? And it would take weeks to get there and weeks to return. So this was serious business, okay? And Jesus says, I don't care if you have to travel 300 miles. You drop that gift off in a nearby temple locker and drag your sorry carcass back 300 miles home so that you can restore that relationship, okay? That's the kind of the effect that Jesus is saying here because Jesus says, I'm making this unresolved conflict the most important event on your calendar right now. So Jesus was, is like, I just cleared your schedule for your boom, okay? I just made this the most important appointment on your calendar, so go do it. That's how seriously Jesus took this. Drop whatever it is you're doing and restore your friendship. The second illustration is in verses 25 and 26. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out of there until you've paid the last penny. This describes a completely different scene here where one person sues another person, okay? Now, I've never been sued before, and I've never had to sue anybody before, and I hope it never happens to me because it's awful. It's awful, okay? Um, you have to spend so much time, so much money, so much energy just sorting this whole disagreement out, and it may not even be a big deal either, 
okay? But Jesus understands this, and so does his audience. So he encourages them, when you when you get sued, uh, you want to come to your terms with your accuser very quickly um, while you're heading with him to the courthouse so that you won't run the risk of ending up in jail. That's kind of the idea. In other words, kind of let me give you an, a modern example of how this works, okay? Let's say, for example, uh, you're driving, you can drive, and I plow into you, okay? And, you know, you're like, you get really mad, obviously, because it's my fault, and you sue me, okay, for all the damages to your car and to your body, okay? So, and you're like, you're going to pay for this. And I'm like, well, you know, the, the, being the good, upstanding person that I am, I say, no, I'm not going to pay for it. And uh, I say, it's all your fault, actually. And so, and so we go to court, and here's the thing. The longer I wait and try to let the courts decide this, the greater chance I have of serving a longer sentence, right? Because the fault's mine. It's my fault. And so if I wait this out, I'm going to spend more money on court, and I'm going to have a greater risk of, of serving a longer sentence for causing some kind of an, a crazy accident and all kinds of stuff, right? That's kind of what, what's going on here. It gets riskier and riskier the longer I wait it out. Wisdom tells me that in that moment, I need to settle with you as soon as I can before it gets really ugly for me, okay? Jesus is saying this exact same thing here. The longer you wait to settle a claim with someone, the greater the risk. And it works that way in real life, but it also works that way in eternal life. The longer you wait, the, long, the longer you wait to reconcile your friendships with other people, the greater risk you run of spending your infinite number of days on the wrong side of eternity. That's what Jesus is kind of getting at here. Don't let a silly disagreement over a small earthly matter keep you from reconciling a spiritual and a heavenly relationship and jeopardize your eternity. This actually could have eternal consequences attached to it. It's that serious. So that's, that's because being angry with someone to the point of murder and being angry with someone to the point of calling them a name, it all comes from the same selfish heart. Being angry with someone doesn't mean you've literally murdered them, but it does mean that, you've, that, that it comes from the same polluted source. Um, James 3.8 calls the tongue a restless evil full of deadly poison. Your tongue is a weapon. It's a poisonous dart, and weapons kill. It's the same concept as murder. You know, the old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. It's just a total lie. Words hurt, and sometimes they're worse even than death blows. They're, they're, they sting so bad. But here's where the great irony comes to our aid. There's a great irony that comes to our aid. The very death that we dish out with our language or even with our actions brought about the very life that we need. Brought about the very life that we need. Acts 2.23 says that Jesus himself delivered, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Even though you and I didn't personally pound 
the nails into Jesus' hands or shove the crowny thorns upon his head or thrust the rusty spear into his side, it's still as if you and I were there murdering the Son of God because each and every single anger, uh, angry act or angry word that we say was is, is, the, is tantamount, is, is exactly the same thing that murdered the Son of God. It's the same effect. We all were there. We all put to death the Son of God. You know, you know the, this famous hymn, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished, but... His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. That comes from how deep a father's love for us. It was my sin that held him there. My sin. I put Jesus to death on the cross. But that death, by the grace of God, strangely enough, sealed my life. It sealed my life. 2 Corinthians 5.14 We have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That is the glorious, wonderful message of the gospel, that though you murdered the Son of God from your heart of hearts, his death brings you life. That's the great news. Now, if that's not your story, then I challenge you to take a deep look at your heart. Have you asked God for forgiveness for the selfishness that fuels your anger, the anger that wants nothing to do with Jesus and his glory, that in effect put Jesus to death on the cross? Or do you still kind of go through the motions and pretend that nothing's wrong? It's a big deal. It's a serious deal. And Jesus highlights that in Matthew chapter 5. There's a lot on the line here. And so the principle that we learn in the New Testament is that you should cherish life too, but from the heart. You should cherish life too from the heart. It's not by accident that God created a tree in the Garden of Eden called life. Life. The tree of life, you know, you've heard of that. He could have named that tree anything he wanted. You know, he could have called it palm tree or maple tree or, you know, woody or something like that because trees are made of wood. I don't know. But he called it life tree. He called it tree of life. And the tree of life was the symbol of life for all humanity that God loves, values, prizes, and cherishes human life and life abundance. That's what the tree of life symbolized. And it's also not not an accident that we find the tree of life return at the end of time. It's going to come back. In the final chapter of the book of Revelation, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river was the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. 
The tree of life at the end of time is the same tree of life that it was at the beginning of time and shows up again. And it was a billboard that advertises that God cherishes life and life abundant. And so should we from the heart. There's no longer any tree of life. There's no tree of life on earth anymore. It's not, you can, you can go, you know, on, you know, some kind of vacation and go see the tree of life or anything like that. It just doesn't exist. Um, there was one at the beginning. There will be one at the end. But, but there's not really a tree of life anymore. And, but here's the thing. There is a tree that still symbolizes life in this world. It's just not what, what it's not just, uh, it's not what you might expect it to be. If you're a Christian, you are a tree of life. You're like, really? I am? You are. I'm not just saying that to be cute and clever. You are. The Bible tells us you are. Um, and you have the same responsibility, the same job as a tree of life. Only your task is more urgent. You are a tree of life in the midst of a dead forest, not a living forest. You are a tree uh, of light in a dark world, not a light world. And you are a tree of hope in a hopeless world, not a world fulfilled with hope. The, here's the thing. How do I know that you are a tree of life? The fruit of the tree of life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You are a tree of life because you bear the fruit of the tree of life as a Christian. Be a tree of life today to draw people to the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ himself. And let's close before him in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that you gave us eternal life through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would be beacons of life in this world, trees of life, that shine the life that you so cherish, life abundant, life so abundant that it, that it spills over into eternal life. And that is the victory that we proclaim with our lives with a simple command that says, do not murder. And that extends far beyond not killing people. It even includes things like helping people and valuing and cherishing lives. It includes things like standing up against abortion it includes things like helping someone, being hospitable to them when they're down and out. It includes just encouraging someone with our kind words every single way. Just as uh, Ephesians 4.29 says, let no rotten word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. We are people who want to show life in everything that we do and say. So help us to do that. And we do this all for the glory of your son, the life. As Colossians 4, 3, 4 says, Christ is our life. And we want to proclaim that. So help us to do that. In his name we pray. Amen.